Deep within the earth, in the shadowed tunnels of a remote coal mine, a group of miners toiled, their faces smeared with soot and sweat. The rhythmic clanging of pickaxes against rock echoed through the cavernous depths. The air was dense with coal dust, making every breath a gritty endeavour. Amidst the monotonous routine, a sharp clink resounded, different from the usual thud of metal against stone. Jim, a burly miner with a weathered face, paused and wiped his brow. He squinted in the dim light of his headlamp, focusing on the source of the sound. There, embedded in the coal seam, was an object unlike any they had encountered before. It was a sphere, about the size of a basketball, made of a metal that gleamed even in the scant light. Intricate engravings, patterns of an unrecognisable language or design, adorned its surface. The metal was cold to the touch, smoother than any natural rock, and it seemed to absorb the light around it, creating a subtle glow. Hey, look at this, Jim called out, beckoning the others. The miners gathered, their lamps converging on the mysterious object. They were a hardened lot, faces etched with the lines of countless hours spent underground. But this discovery sparked a childlike curiosity in their eyes. What in the world is that? muttered Sam, a younger miner with a thin frame and alert eyes. He reached out tentatively, as if half expecting the sphere to react. No idea, but it ain't coal, grunted Mark, the oldest of the group, his voice as rough as the tunnels they worked in. Mark had seen many things in his years of mining, but this was beyond his understanding. The decision to bring it to the surface was unanimous. Carefully, they chiselled around the sphere, ensuring not to damage it. Once freed, it was surprisingly heavy, demanding the effort of two men to carry it. They progressed through the intricate tunnels, the sphere's creepy glow painting their shadows long and gaunt against the rough walls. Emerging into the dusky light of the late afternoon, they blinked against the brightness. The mining town was a cluster of simple homes and buildings, nestled in a valley surrounded by dense forests. It was a place forgotten by time where everyone knew everyone, and the mine was their lifeline. The sphere, now exposed to the open air, seemed even more out of place, an artifact of unknown origin in their familiar rugged world. The miners set it down near the entrance of the mine. Should we report this? Sam asked, uncertain. To who? The mining company? They'd just haul it away and we'd never see it again, Jim replied, his distrust of the higher-ups evident. No, let's keep it here for now. Figure out what it is first, Mark decided, his voice carrying an authority honed by years of leading his fellow miners. As night began to fall, the sphere sat quietly by the mine's entrance, its surface catching the last rays of the setting sun. The miners dispersed, heading to their homes, but the image of the unearthed mystery lingered in their minds. In the outskirts of the mining town, nestled among a scattering of shanty workshops and rusted machinery, was the garage of Hank, the town's mechanic. Known for his inventive mind and a penchant for taking apart anything mechanical, Hank's workshop was cluttered with various contraptions and tools, each telling a story of ingenuity and improvisation. The news of the miners' bizarre discovery spread through the town like wildfire, 
and it wasn't long before it reached Hank. Intrigued by the description of the metallic sphere, he made his way to the mine under the guise of dusk. His curiosity peaked. The sphere, still resting by the mine's entrance, looked more alien in the twilight. Hank circled it, his eyes analysing its every detail. The intricate engravings were unlike anything he had ever seen, reminiscent of an ancient script or some sort of circuitry. With a careful hand, he transported the sphere to his workshop. The weight of the object was substantial, but Hank managed it with a dexterity born of years handling engine parts and heavy machinery. Once inside, he set the sphere on a sturdy workbench under the bright glare of a hanging bulb. Hank's approach was methodical. He examined the sphere with a magnifying glass, tracing the engravings, looking for any signs of openings or mechanisms. His fingers prodded and tapped, testing for movement or reaction. When physical examination yielded no results, Hank resorted to his tools. He tried various devices, an electrical tester to detect any energy, a heat sensor, even a homemade contraption designed to pick up radio frequencies. It was during this barrage of tests that he accidentally activated the device. The sphere began to emit a soft glow, rhythmically brightening and dimming like the beat of a heart. The light was mesmerizing, casting an ethereal aura around the cluttered workshop. Hank, wide-eyed, ceased his probing and simply watched. That night, Hank's dreams were vivid and peculiar. He dreamt of a lavish feast, tables laden with sumptuous dishes, exotic fruits he couldn't name, and roasted meats wafting tantalizing aromas. The dream was so lucid, he could almost taste the flavors. The next morning, Hank awoke to an unbelievable sight. There, in his modest dining room, was the exact feast from his dream. The tables groaned under the weight of the dishes, each prepared to perfection. The air was filled with the rich scents of the food, a striking difference from the usual simple fare of his bachelor life. For a moment, Hank stood dumbfounded, his mind grappling with the reality before him. The sphere, which he had left in his workshop, seemed to be the source of this impossible occurrence. The phenomenon of Hank's inexplicable feast became the talk of the town. Whispers turned into animated discussions at the local diner, in the aisles of the small grocery store, and on the porches of weathered homes. The miners, initially hesitant, confirmed the tale, adding to the growing intrigue surrounding the sphere. Encouraged by Hank's experience, the townspeople's skepticism slowly turned into a collective curiosity. A sense of wonder, a rare feeling in their routine lives, began to take hold. The mechanic, albeit with some reservations, agreed to let others try their luck with the mysterious device. It started with a few brave souls. Under Hank's watchful eye, they interacted with the sphere in his workshop, each hoping to replicate the dream manifestation. The results were nothing short of miraculous. Martha, the town's librarian, dreamt of her childhood home, a quaint cottage in a meadow, which she hadn't seen since she was a young girl. To her astonishment, she woke up to find a perfect miniature of the cottage on her bedside table, complete with tiny, blooming flowers and smoke curling from the miniature chimney. Old Joe, 
the retired postman, longed for the company of his late dog, Max. The next day, the town was amazed to see him walking down the street, a lively, tail-wagging Max by his side, as real as any flesh-and-blood canine. Young Tommy, a dreamer at heart, wished for a field of sunflowers. The following morning, the empty lot next to the school was transformed into a sea of golden blooms, turning heads and lifting spirits. As the stories multiplied, the sphere's fame spread beyond the confines of the mechanic's workshop. The townspeople treated it with reverence and childlike excitement, each eager to have their turn. They gathered in small groups, discussing what they would wish for, their faces alight with possibilities. The device seemed to have a benign nature, its only purpose to bring to life the dreams of those who interacted with it. There were rules they followed, one dream per person and nothing harmful or malicious. Hank monitored each session, his fascination tempered with a cautious respect for the sphere's power. The town began to bloom with these fantastical creations. The main street, usually quiet and somber, buzzed with energy and laughter. People shared their experiences and marveled at the manifestations, a sense of community rekindling in their hearts. Yet, in the midst of this wonder, there were whispers of concern. A few cautious voices wondered about the implications of tampering with reality, of the unseen consequences of their newfound ability. These concerns, however, were drowned out by the overwhelming tide of excitement and joy. The initial wave of joy and fascination with the sphere's capabilities began to wane as the first sign of trouble emerged, casting a shadow over the town's newfound wonder. It started with Mike, a miner known for his stoic demeanour and few words. Mike, like many of his colleagues, had spent the majority of his life in the dark recesses of the earth, a life that often brewed a latent, unspoken fear of being trapped underground. Following the trend, Mike interacted with the sphere one evening, his expression unreadable as he touched its smooth, cold surface. That night, the fear that lurked in the depths of his mind manifested into a vivid nightmare. He dreamt of a cave-in within the mine, the walls collapsing around him, trapping him in an oppressive pitch-black tomb. The terror was evident, the sensation of confinement and darkness overwhelming. The next morning, the town woke to a chilling discovery. The entrance to the mine, the lifeline of the town, was sealed shut with an unyielding mass of rocks and debris. It was an exact replica of the cave-in from Mike's nightmare, down to the smallest detail. Panic ensued as the miners gathered, their faces etched with disbelief and fear. Attempts to clear the entrance proved futile. The rocks were as solid and real as any they had ever mined. The realization hit them with a cold certainty. The device didn't differentiate between dreams and nightmares. Word spread rapidly, the sense of wonder that once surrounded the sphere turning into a deep unease. The townspeople gathered in quiet, anxious groups, their earlier excitement replaced by a growing apprehension. The implications of the sphere's power were now starkly apparent. It was a conduit for their deepest fears. Hank, feeling a mounting responsibility for the situation, called a meeting at the town hall. The hall, usually reserved for mundane community announcements, was packed to the brim. 
Concerned faces looked up at Hank as he stood on the small stage, the sphere placed conspicuously beside him. We thought it was a gift, Hank began, his voice heavy with the weight of the situation. But we didn't understand it fully. This thing, it's not just bringing to life our good dreams. It's doing the same for our nightmares. Murmurs rippled through the crowd. The dreamy facade of the past days had crumbled, revealing a daunting reality. They had toyed with a force beyond their understanding, and now they were facing the consequences. The incident at the mine was just the beginning. As the days progressed, the town's collective fears began to surface with alarming frequency and intensity. The streets of the once quiet town transformed into a surreal tableau of nightmares made flesh. It started subtly. Shadows seemed to linger longer, twisting into sinister shapes at the corners of one's vision. The wind carried whispers that seemed almost intelligible, causing an involuntary shudder. But soon, these minor disturbances escalated into full-fledged manifestations of terror. One morning, the townspeople awoke to find the central park overrun by an impenetrable dark forest. The trees were unnaturally tall, their branches gnarled and claw-like, blocking out the sun. An oppressive sense of dread hung in the air, and none dared to venture too close. Mrs. Henderson, the sweet old lady who ran the flower shop, had always feared spiders. Her nightmare spawned a horde of oversized eight-legged creatures that skittered through the streets, their eyes glinting maliciously. The sight of them caused panic, and people barricaded themselves indoors, peering fearfully through their windows. The Johnson's young son, plagued by a fear of drowning, dreamt of a great flood. Overnight, the town's main street turned into a raging river, the water murky and swirling, threatening to engulf anything in its path. The relentless sound of rushing water became a constant, unnerving background noise. With each passing day, more nightmarish visions materialized, each unique to the fears of its dreamer. The townspeople became prisoners in their own homes, afraid to venture outside, where the landscape had turned alien and hostile. The sphere was now an object of deep-seated dread. Sleep became a battleground of the psyche. The townspeople's anxiety about sleeping fed into a vicious cycle. The more they feared their nightmares becoming reality, the more potent those nightmares became. Hank, feeling a growing sense of guilt for his role in unleashing this chaos, sought a solution. Night after night, he pored over books and notes, trying to decipher the engravings on the sphere, hoping to find a way to reverse its effects. But the answers eluded him, the cryptic symbols as incomprehensible as ever. The town was now fractured by fear and mistrust. Neighbours eyed each other warily, wondering whose nightmare would be next to manifest and wreak havoc. The once bustling streets were now eerily deserted, save for the occasional nightmarish apparition. The escalating terror brought on by the sphere drove a deep wedge into the heart of the community. The town hall became the arena for heated debates and bitter arguments. The townspeople, united in their fear, were divided in their opinions on how to handle the ominous device. One faction, led by Jim, the miner who had first discovered the sphere, argued for its immediate destruction. This thing has brought nothing but misery, 
Jim declared in a town meeting, his voice echoing through the tense hall. We need to get rid of it, smash it, bury it, whatever it takes. Our lives were better before it. His sentiment resonated with many. They were simple folk, unaccustomed to the supernatural and unprepared for the havoc it wreaked. Their lives had been hard but predictable, and they longed to return to that simplicity. They viewed the sphere as an aberration, a curse that needed to be expunged. On the other side of the debate was a smaller but vocal group, led by Melissa, a local schoolteacher. She, along with others, argued for the preservation of the sphere. Think about its potential, she urged, standing amidst the crowd. This could be a breakthrough in science, something that could benefit all of humanity. We can't just destroy it out of fear. Her followers echoed her thoughts, seeing the sphere as a gateway to a new understanding of reality. They believed that with proper study and control, the benefits could outweigh the current horrors. Their dreams of a better future, powered by the sphere's capabilities, blinded them to the immediate dangers. This ideological rift led to shouting matches, accusations, and even physical altercations. Friends turned against friends, neighbours viewed each other with suspicion, and families were torn between opposing views. The once close community began to fracture, the ties that bound them strained under the weight of fear and differing beliefs. Hank, who found himself in the middle of this divide, felt the burden of responsibility heavier than ever. He understood both sides, the desire to return to a peaceful life and the curiosity to explore the unknown. But the increasing danger posed by the sphere's manifestations made it clear that a decision had to be made soon. The town's leadership, overwhelmed by the situation, struggled to maintain order. The mayor, a soft-spoken man who had never faced a crisis of this magnitude, found himself caught between the opposing factions, unable to propose a solution that would satisfy all. The turmoil within the town did not go unnoticed by the world outside. Reports of the bizarre occurrences in the small mining community had spread, eventually catching the attention of a team of researchers from a prestigious university in a distant city. These researchers, specialists in fields ranging from physics to psychology, were drawn by the unique and unexplainable events that the town was experiencing. Arriving in a convoy of vehicles laden with equipment, the researchers brought with them an air of authority and knowledge. They were led by Dr. Rachel Harrow, a renowned physicist known for her work in quantum mechanics and her open-minded approach to unexplained phenomena. With her was Dr. Rajesh Singh, a psychologist with a keen interest in the power of the human mind and several other experts in various scientific fields. The townspeople, already fractured in their opinions, received the researchers with hope and scepticism. Some saw them as saviours, equipped with the knowledge and tools to end their nightmare. Others viewed them as opportunists, come to exploit their misfortune for academic gain. Dr. Harrow and her team wasted no time in setting up their base of operations in the town hall. They approached the situation with a methodical precision, interviewing townspeople, taking meticulous notes, and examining the physical and environmental changes in the town. Their primary interest, however, was the sphere. Hank, with a sense of relief, 
handed over the responsibility of the mysterious object to Dr. Harrow. The researchers examined the sphere with a variety of instruments, their readings and observations shrouded in technical jargon that flew over the heads of the onlooking townspeople. As the researchers immersed themselves in their study, they maintained a line of open communication with the town's residents. Dr. Singh conducted group sessions, attempting to understand the psychological impact of the events and the nature of the dreams and nightmares being manifested. Dr. Harrow, meanwhile, hypothesized about the possible nature of the sphere. It might be an object that somehow taps into the quantum field of consciousness, she speculated during a town meeting. It's as if it's bridging the gap between thought and reality, materializing mental constructs into physical forms. The team worked without respite, their presence bringing a semblance of hope to the beleaguered town. They promised to seek a solution, to find a way to control or neutralize the sphere's effects. However, they cautioned that the process would require time and study. The situation in the town took a turn for the worse. The manifestations of the townspeople's fears and nightmares intensified both in frequency and danger, creating a perpetual state of terror. Each day brought a new horror. The local school was engulfed by an unscalable maze, a manifestation of the principal's anxiety about losing control. The streets were occasionally shrouded in impenetrable fog, echoing the fears of several elderly residents afraid of losing their sight. Aggressive, shadowy figures stalked the alleys at night, born from the collective paranoia of the unknown. The researchers, despite their expertise and equipment, seemed powerless to stop the escalating phenomena. Dr. Harrow's team worked day and night conducting experiments and calculations, but the sphere remained a mystery. Dr. Singh's psychological assessments revealed the deep-seated fears and anxieties of the townspeople, but understanding the problem did little to solve it. The sphere seemed to feed off these fears, materializing them with increasing intensity. The researchers' initial confidence began to wane as they faced the unpredictable and inexplicable nature of the events. Dr. Harrow, usually composed and decisive, showed signs of frustration. It's as if we're trying to solve a puzzle that changes its pieces every time we think we're close to an answer, she confessed to Hank one evening. Meanwhile, the townspeople's trust in the researchers' ability to find a solution dwindled. The initial hope that the team had brought with them was replaced by a sense of despair. People began to avoid the sphere's location, crossing the street to steer clear of the town hall. The nights were the worst. As darkness fell, an uneasy silence enveloped the town, broken only by the occasional scream or the distant sound of something unworldly prowling the streets. Families huddled together, seeking comfort in each other's presence, jumping at every creak and whisper. Sleep became a luxury few dared to indulge in, for fear of what their subconscious might unleash. Exhaustion took its toll on the townspeople, both physically and mentally, leaving them on edge and more susceptible to their fears. Hank, the town's mechanic, had been feeling the weight of responsibility ever since he first laid hands on the sphere. He watched helplessly as his town descended into chaos and the guilt that it was his workshop where the sphere's capabilities were first unleashed gnawed at him. 
Determined to put an end to the nightmare, Hank decided to take matters into his own hands. One fateful night, he snuck into the town hall where the researchers had set up their base. The sphere, now an object of fear and mystery, sat ominously on a pedestal, its surface illuminated by the light of Hank's flashlight. Hank's plan was straightforward yet perilous, to dismantle the sphere, hoping that by doing so, he might deactivate it and stop the nightmarish manifestations. He had gathered an assortment of tools from his workshop, each selected for precision and purpose. His hands, though steady, betrayed a hint of trepidation as he approached the object. As he began his work, Hank's mind was a whirlwind of emotions. He knew the risks, but the thought of his town, once peaceful and now plagued by terror, strengthened his resolve. He started by examining the sphere's surface, looking for seams or openings, but the sphere was seamless, its surface unyielding to his tools. Frustrated but not deterred, Hank attempted to use a small, high-powered saw to make an incision. The moment the blade touched the sphere's surface, a blinding light erupted from it, engulfing Hank in a radiant glow. He cried out, more in shock than pain, as the light consumed him and the room. The light was so intense it spilled out from the windows of the town hall, casting a surreal glow over the town. The townspeople, already on edge, emerged from their homes, drawn by the strange phenomenon. Inside the town hall, Hank was trapped in a vision so powerful it contradicted reality. He found himself in a world that mirrored his deepest fears, a world where he was responsible for the destruction of his town. The streets were in ruins, buildings collapsed, and the air was heavy with the smell of smoke and despair. Ghostly figures roamed the landscape, their accusing eyes fixed on him. Unbeknownst to Hank, his vision was not confined to his mind. The sphere, reacting to his direct interference, had unleashed a wave of energy, altering the town's reality. The streets twisted and turned in impossible ways. Buildings contorted into grotesque shapes, and the sky turned a menacing shade of red. The townspeople caught in this altered reality were thrown into a state of utter panic. The familiar was replaced with the bizarre and terrifying. The landscape became a maze of their collective fears, a twisted version of their town that was both alien and familiar. As the night progressed, the community found themselves isolated in pockets of distorted reality, each group experiencing their own version of the nightmare. The town, already fractured by fear and uncertainty, was now physically divided by the manifestations of their darkest thoughts. In the midst of the pandemonium, a glimmer of resistance sparked among the townspeople. This ember of defiance was kindled by Tom, a resilient miner known for his unyielding spirit. Tom had spent his life confronting the dangers of the mine. Now, he faced a different kind of darkness that threatened his town and his loved ones. Gathering a group of townspeople, Tom rallied them. We can't let this thing beat us, he declared, his voice cutting through the despair. We're stronger together. We need to fight back for our town, for each other. The group consisted of a diverse mix of the town's residents, Martha, the librarian with a sharp mind, Joe, the retired postman, still robust despite his years, 
Young Tommy, whose imagination was as vivid as the sunflowers he once dreamt into existence, and several others, each carrying the weight of their own nightmares. Armed with weapons, axes, hammers, and anything they could find, they ventured into the twisted streets of their town. The landscape was unrecognizable. Buildings twisted into grotesque shapes, the sky a whirlpool of ominous clouds. The air was heavy with an unnerving silence, broken only by the occasional distant scream or the unsettling skitter of unseen creatures. Navigating this labyrinth was a challenge in itself. Streets that once led to familiar destinations now twisted into dead ends or looped back on themselves. The group relied on Tom's innate sense of direction, honed in the underground tunnels, to guide them. They encountered their first obstacle soon enough. A pack of grotesque creatures, born from the collective fears of the town, blocked their path. These beings, with gnarled limbs and gaping mouths, seemed to be a manifestation of primal fears, a blend of various anxieties and terrors that had plagued the townspeople. The confrontation was fierce. Tom and his group fought with a desperate courage, driven by the need to protect their town and each other. Each swing of their weapons was fueled by fear and defiance. The creatures, though terrifying, were not invincible. They dissipated into shadowy mist when defeated, a sign that these manifestations, while dangerous, could be overcome. As they progressed, the group encountered other townspeople, trapped in their own pockets of nightmare. With each rescue, their numbers grew. Stories of bravery and close calls were exchanged, bolstering their spirits amidst the surreal horror surrounding them. Their journey was not just a physical battle, but a psychological one. Each twisted street, each grotesque creature, was a reflection of their innermost fears. Confronting them was as much about battling their personal demons as it was about surviving the sphere's manifestations. After navigating through the twisted, nightmarish version of their town, Tom's group finally reached the town hall, the epicenter of the chaos. The building itself seemed to shudder with a malevolent energy, its windows gleaming with an unsettling light. Inside, the sphere sat on its pedestal, no longer the inert object they remembered, but a throbbing mass of energy, blinking erratically as if alive with malevolent intent. The researchers, led by Dr. Harrow, were there, their faces etched with exhaustion and despair. They looked up as Tom and the others entered. We've been trying to find a way to stop it, Dr. Harrow explained, her voice strained. But it's not like anything we've ever encountered. It doesn't obey the laws of physics as we know them. It's... it's as if it's alive, in a sense. Dr. Singh stepped forward, his eyes reflecting a deep understanding of the grim situation. We believe the sphere is powered by human consciousness, he said. It's not just manifesting our dreams and nightmares. It's feeding on them, growing stronger from our fears and desires. The revelation hit the group with the force of a physical blow. The sphere was a parasite, drawing its power from their very minds. The implications were terrifying. It meant that the sphere could not be destroyed by conventional means. As long as there were people to dream and fear, it would continue to exist. Tom, gripping his improvised weapon tightly, looked at the sphere, 
with a new sense of urgency. So what do we do? How do we stop this thing if we can't destroy it? Dr. Harrow shook her head, her expression one of frustration. We've been trying to figure that out, but every attempt to neutralize it has only made things worse. It's like it adapts and responds to our actions. The group stood in a tense silence, the reality of their situation sinking in. The sphere seemed to mock their helplessness. It was then that a thought struck Martha, the librarian. If it's powered by our consciousness, by our dreams and fears, what if we feed it something else? What if we try to change what it feeds on? Her suggestion hung in the air, a fragile thread of hope in the overwhelming darkness. It was a desperate idea, but in the face of such dire circumstances, desperation was all they had left. The group huddled together, discussing the possibility. The plan was risky and untested, but it offered a sliver of hope. They needed to confront the sphere not with fear and violence, but with positive, collective willpower, with thoughts and dreams of peace and normality. Amidst the desperate brainstorming and planning to counteract the sphere's influence, a heavy realization settled over the group. The sphere's insatiable hunger for human consciousness meant that as long as there were people to dream and fear, it would never cease. The only way to truly end the nightmare was to cut off its power source completely. It was Hank, the mechanic who first unleashed the sphere's power, who stepped forward with a resolution etched in his weary but determined eyes. I started this, he said, his voice steady despite the turmoil around him. I brought it into our lives. It's only right that I'm the one to end it. Hank's plan was as heart-wrenching as it was courageous. He proposed to enter a permanent dream state, effectively becoming a living conduit to keep the sphere contained. By directing his consciousness into a constant controlled dream, he would deprive the sphere of the varied human emotions and thoughts it fed on, rendering it dormant. The group reacted with shock and protest. Hank, you can't! Tom said, his voice intense with emotion. There's got to be another way! But Hank was resolute. It's the only way to ensure this thing stops hurting people. I'll be in a dream, a good dream. It's better than the nightmares we've all been living. Dr. Singh, after a moment of contemplation, nodded slowly. It's theoretically possible, he admitted. If Hank can maintain a steady, positive dream state... It might just starve the sphere of the chaos it needs. Preparations were made swiftly. Dr. Singh and his team set up a rudimentary area for Hank to lie down, surrounded by monitors and medical equipment. They administered a sedative, one that would keep Hank in a deep, dream-filled sleep, while still allowing his mind to remain active enough to engage with the sphere. As Hank lay down, the townspeople gathered around, their faces showing sorrow, and gratitude. Martha held Hank's hand, offering a tearful smile. Thank you, she whispered, her voice choked with emotion. Hank's eyelids fluttered closed as the sedative took effect. The room was silent, save for the steady beep of the heart monitor and Hank's deep, even breathing. All eyes were on the sphere, which continued to pulsate, though with less intensity. Slowly, almost imperceptibly at first, the nightmarish landscape of the town began to revert. 
The twisted buildings straightened, the dark sky lightened, and the grotesque creatures faded into nothingness. The sphere's glow dimmed, its chaotic pulsing steadying into a gentle rhythm. Hank, in his dream state, had become a living anchor, holding the sphere's chaotic power at bay. His sacrifice was not in vain. The town was freed from the grip of the nightmarish reality that had consumed it. In the wake of Hank's monumental sacrifice, a sense of relief swept through the town. The nightmarish manifestations, which had once plagued the streets with terror and chaos, ceased entirely. As the sun rose, casting a warm, reassuring light over the town, it was as if a dark veil had been lifted. The townspeople emerged from their homes, blinking in the daylight, almost disbelieving that the nightmare was over. The streets were now back to their familiar, comforting normality. The eerie, oppressive atmosphere had dissipated, replaced by the gentle sounds of a typical morning. Birds chirping, leaves rustling in the gentle breeze, neighbours greeting each other. There was a collective sense of mourning for what had been endured, but also a deep gratitude for the return to normalcy. People came together to repair the damage, to rebuild what had been lost, not just physically, but emotionally and socially as well. The sphere, the root of all the chaos, was now dormant, stilled by Hank's ongoing dream. The researchers, in consultation with the townspeople, decided that it needed to be buried, put away where it could no longer pose a threat. A deep pit was dug, far from the town and the mine, in an unmarked location known only to a trusted few. In a solemn procession, the townspeople escorted the sphere to its final resting place. Beside it, in a peaceful slumber, lay Hank, connected to life support systems designed by the researchers to sustain his dream state indefinitely. It was a decision made with heavy hearts, but they knew it was the only way to ensure the safety of their town and possibly the world beyond. The pit was filled and the ground was smoothed over, leaving no trace of the sphere or the brave man who had become its keeper. A small, unassuming monument was erected nearby, a tribute to Hank and the sacrifice he had made. No names or dates were inscribed, just a simple phrase. In honour of the dreamer who saved us. Life in the town gradually returned to its old rhythm. The miners went back to the coal seams, the school reopened its doors, and the local businesses resumed their trade. The events that had transpired became a part of the town's history, a tale of courage and sacrifice that would be passed down through generations. But the memory of the sphere and its terrifying power remained fresh in the minds of those who had experienced it. It served as a sobering reminder of the unknown forces that exist just beyond the veil of reality and the extraordinary lengths to which ordinary people can go to protect the world they know and love.